The following presentation was recorded live at the 2015 National Binance So my name is Kevin Danner with Global Exchange. We started back in 1988, a nonprofit organization based in San Francisco. And because we were so far to the left, we weren't afraid of people calling us capitalists by basing most of our nonprofit revenue on enterprise, because enterprise is a useful institutional form. Now, I'm not talking about big transnational corporations that crush the mom and pop sector and pollute the environment. No, I'm talking about enterprise as a model where you have two questions. Did you exploit people or nature in the production of your goods and services? And two, where did the profits go? Do they go into your pocket for your third mansion, or do they go back into the educational work that's so desperately needed at this point in human history because every, and I stress, every biological system on this planet is in a state of collapse. I'm a wordsmith. I, I'm very careful with my language. Every biological system on this planet is giving us this huge dope slap, and that's why there's the fourth level of the brain developing, the new level of consciousness that's global, that sees the child starving in Africa and says, that's my child, that's my child. That's not just the two girls that I wrote checks for and drove to basketball practice and things like that. Those children are my children. That's the only, I think, correct spiritual position we can take. And that's part of what motivated the Cuban Revolution, that there would be no hungry children, no illit... Cuba had massive illiteracy, right? Massive inequality. So Global Exchange started doing Cuba trips a long time ago. I actually went first time in 1979 for the International Youth and Student Festival, which would happen each year in some communist country. And you've got all these 20-something, 30-something hot political activists from a hundred countries partying for 10 days in Cuba. So obviously it opened my mind to look around and see what's going on in this place. And I remember that first time, uh, a friend of mine I, I met who was born in a dirt floor shack but got a PhD, he's taken me around and he takes me to an elder center. Every neighborhood has an elder center. And there's all these little, you know, and there's a doctor on staff and a nurse on staff and they're doing exercises, checking blood pressure. And there's all these little kids running in and out. And I said to him, who organized these kids to be here? He says, what do you mean, who organized it? These are just neighborhood kids who wander in and out and play with the elders. You find me an elder center in the United States where that happens naturally and organically. So I want to show you some comparisons, not between Cuba and the U.S. colonies of Jamaica, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, Haiti. No, I want to show you comparisons between little tiny 11 million Cuba hardly any resources, and the United States. And by the way, uh, Green Festival is coming up, second weekend in November. At, we created it 14 years ago here in San Francisco. We've gone to eight other cities with a big green economy show. These cards will get you a discount if you folks would mind passing some of those back. That would be great. And information on our reality tours, out on the table outside, on your way out, there are sheets about our trips to Cuba. And this is uh, these pamphlets here, reality tours, trademark. We take people to about 30 different countries with a bottom-up perspective, get to know your brothers and sisters around the world and feel solidarity with them. So the question is, what country has the greatest gap between what Americans think is there and what's actually there? It's Cuba, it's Cuba. We've taken people to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Libya, to South Africa, China, Vietnam, Brazil, Mexico, Nicaragua, et cetera. 
But Cuba, you find the biggest distance between people thinking, oh, this is a terrible place. Oh, there's no freedom. They don't have democracy. They do have elections in Cuba, by the way, which have a higher percentage of women in their national legislation, higher percentage of black people, higher percentage of clergy in their national parliament than we have in our Congress. Interesting. So compare Cuba to the USA or countries similar to Cuba. Same lifespan as the United States. Infant mortality is slightly better, actually, than the United States, using one-eighth the oil that, that we use per capita. One-eighth, okay, 12.5%. Compared to other island nations, like I said, Cuba looks great. The question to people is, if you were going to raise a family in one of these Caribbean islands, which one would you take? You're just a work, regular working class person. You're not a rich tourist. You're not a brain surgeon from Canada, okay? Do I sound bitter? So this is Cuba and the U.S. Teachers per 100 students, they beat us. Doctors per 1,000 people, they beat us. Average lifespan, roughly equal. The key thing to look at here is the Happy Planet Index. And this is a website you should check out and run the video on the website Happy Planet Index. I know this guy. He slept in my house years ago. He's an awesome guy. He's a British guy. They set up this Happy Planet Index where they factor in all the ways in which people are walking on the planet, right? The biological capacity of our planet. Cuba ranks seventh in the world. <clears throat> we rank 114th because we're such gluttons and so wasteful, et cetera. Happy Planet Index, really cool site. They did an energy revolution in Cuba. Fidel said, we are not waiting for fuel to fall from the sky because we have discovered, fortunately, something much more important, energy conservation, which is like finding a great oil deposit. And Cuba has found oil recently. But they'll manage it differently than uh, Qatar and Saudi Arabia, I'm sure. Saudi Arabia, by the way, is colonizing the water of the southwest by growing hay in places where there's a lot of groundwater and then shipping the hay to Saudi Arabia to feed their dairy cows, which you shouldn't be raising dairy cows on a desert. So Cuba had its peak oil when the Soviet Union collapsed, 89, 90, Their GNP per capita dropped by a third. Imagine if US standard of living, whoa, went down by a third. We had a crash in 2008. But it was only the poor that suffered, really. I didn't see any bankers doing the perp walk. Um, so 2006, they declared the year of the energy revolution. And they said, if you have any old energy appliances, toasters, irons, fans, refrigerators, whatever, you bring it in, and we'll give you a free replacement. So think about this. We were always taught that a command economy is a bad thing. Oh, yeah, they make a 5,000-pound nail because there's a weight quota in the nail factory. You know, all those bullshit stories, right? Communism's a failure. Well, actually, a command economy, if you want to make sure there's schools in every village, if you want to make sure there's solar panels on all the buildings, not just in big centralized collectors where PG&E can control it, monopolize the access to it. No, but spread a, a command economy is a good thing. They did a national transition to organic agriculture. It's never been done before as a nation, right? So command economy makes sense. They cut their energy consumption 50%, and here's how they did it. Uh, come on, hello, hello. What's going on? Oh, this stupid hotel. 
hey, free Wi-Fi. It's not free. You want me to pay for it, but you put the word free up there. Come on, people. Okay, so household appliances. 100% of rice cookers, 92%. This is what got turned in. 99% of hot plates. I don't know what that thing in the bucket is. Uh, so they're doing this whole energy efficiency, renewable energy, but spread out renewable. Think, if you do a big centralized solar collector or a massive wind farm, it's either big government or big corporation. And big institution means not democratic. Stupid, right? So the technology can embody anti-democratic impacts. If it's big and centralized, well, we'll let you rent access to it. You know, huh? What? No, I want it on my own roof, recharging my electric car. Renewable sources of energy, they're doing wind farms, uh, sugarcane biomass, uh, the bagasse. You can cook the bagasse and get fuel from it. You can also actually make compostable takeout containers from it. That'd be an industry if you wanted to start in Cuba. That would be a good one. Hydro, a lot of hydro reservoirs. Um, this, that's a, the hot water heater is a Chinese. If you go to China, you will see that hot water heater on every roof in the country. It's amazing. By 1998, there were more than 8,000 urban farms producing nearly half the country's vegetables. The policy grew from a grassroots thing, really, into the largest sustainable farming initiative ever in world history, making Cuba the world leader in urban farming. And these are two books you might want to check out. The farms that you find in the cities of Cuba put hours. I do urban agriculture in San Francisco. The San Francisco Urban Agriculture Alliance meets in my office. I, I work in a high school program at Mission High School where we took out a parking lot and a whole bunch of sidewalk cement. The city gave us money to take out the cement. We big barred and stole some seeds and shovels and nah, nah, all that kind of stuff. The kit. Uh, one block away is Byright Market. It's owned by Sam McGowan, an excellent guy. He's on the mission, the, on the advisory council of the school, and I'm on the advisory council of the school. He agreed to buy everything we produced before we even took out the asphalt. I said to the kids, you can't screw this up. You got... So if we ease them into radical enterprise and teach them how to handle money, not as a, I'm going to be Donald Trump someday, God help us, please. I feel sorry for the guy. But enterprise is a good thing. Raul Castro ran the military. And when he ran the military, he understood that enterprise is not a bad thing, because they had hotels. We stayed in some of their hotels. They had all sorts of uh, resorts and stuff that they were generating revenue from, which gave them some independence from the little bit of money that they were getting from the central government. Right? So he understood enterprise is not the problem. Monopoly capitalism, transnational corporate extractive economy, that's the problem, right? And that extractive economy is coming home here to roost. Just a little data on the mix of Cuban agriculture. Notice vegetables, this dark purple, and see how much it grows in the recent years, right? And see how the light blue, the big one, that's sugarcane, woohoo, and it's going down. Because sugarcane's a loser in the world market. It costs you more to produce it than you can sell it for. Plus, sugar is poison. You shouldn't eat sugar. Sorry, Cuba. The first time I went to Cuba and I said, oh, no, don't put sugar in my coffee, one of the ultra-leftists sitting next to me said, oh, dude, you're going to wreck their economy. You better put sugar in your coffee. Yeah, right. Good economics class you went to. Now, this is 
the, this is the Human Development Index, which is done by the United Nations Human Development Agency. It's a composite of gender equality, infant mortality, mother mortality, child mortality, doctors per thousand, teachers per thousand, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Cuba ranks high, but on the ecological footprint, they're below the global average. They're walking really light on the planet. Look where we are, oink, oink. And yet Cuba is up where we are in the Human Development Index. In the Human Development Index, Cuba outranks Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia with all that oil revenue? Really? Yeah, that place where women can't drive cars? Yeah, that place that we're such good allies with. So please check out our website, globalexchange.org. You want to go to Cuba? We've been doing it for a long time. We have some years where we do 40 trips in a year. We've had as many as 200 people. And when you bring two, actually, it's easier to do big groups than small groups. When you bring 200 people into a hotel, that's your hotel. They're like, oh, you're with the Global Exchange Group? Right this way. We have some great parties down in Cuba. Thank you for your attention. Appreciate it. Oh, Greg Watson. Hopefully I won't. Hi, good afternoon. I'm Greg Watson. Uh, I am the director of um, policy and system design with the Schumacher Center for New Economics. And based in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, Schumacher, E.F. Schumacher, for folks, how many people read Smallest Beautiful Economics as if people mattered? So that's what the Schumacher Center is really sort of here based in the U.S., but looking at new economic models that really do take into account uh, the human factor, and I pri right, I'm, I'm there, and I just started there in January of this year. Prior to that, I was actually serving as the commissioner of the Massachusetts Department of Agriculture, and it was my actually second tour of duty. I was commissioner, this is one of these weird deals, I was commissioner 20 years before that, did a bunch of things in between, but then came back, I think, to me fix up the mess that I did 20 years ago. Um, but the big difference um, was when I came back after, after 20 years, one of the programs that we started was an urban agriculture program. And uh, we got a lot of inquiries about, well, our, urban agriculture going beyond backyard gardens, at least in our case, and, and um, community gardens really meant commercial farms. For instance, the city of Boston, the whole city of Boston has rezoned to allow commercial farming within its city limits. And we've got folks now that are sort of looking at, really looking at the entrepreneurial aspects of, of urban agriculture. But the question that was posed to me is, where's the best example of urban ag? We were still sort of floundering. And I said, Cuba. Um, I thought it was Cuba, and I'd kind of say, yes, that sounds good. And um, the next thing I know, the Schumacher, and I was on the board of the Schumacher Center at the time, Susan with the director actually got some, a grant to, for us to take a, a, uh, uh, a delegation looking at the sustainable food system in Cuba, because it, part of it is agroecology, but they've, done, they've, they've gone even further than that and put together a pretty comprehensive food system. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Oh, they're great, thanks. Here. Um, Kevin went through with this a little bit, but there, you know, the history is, you know, a little bit. They got, you got the revolution, uh, you have the embargo, and these are really sort of the, the, the key points there, right? And the embargo, that didn't happen, but you can, and then um, the, the fall of the Soviet empire, the collapse of the Soviet bloc, and uh, certainly um, sort of monumental in terms. And when, when that, you know, the collapse, 
did create a real food crisis. There was the economic crisis, but the immediate crisis was you had a, you know, again, loss of, again, here, here we say 60% of, of, of GDP, but look at the decrease in food production. Tubers down 96%, vegetables 64%, fruit 73%. You can read it, but, and, you know, the shells were, were basically bare. This was a crisis of, of you know, gigantic proportions. And it, it, it had a dire impact. For the first couple of years of that special period, the average Cuban was lost somewhere between 10, 15, 10 and 20 pounds. Really, just so malnourished. This was a really, and, and you know, for all sorts of reasons, um, Castro was not going to uh, capitulate to the United States. And there, was, there are lots of good, I will say, from my perspective, lots of very good reasons why that didn't happen. Lots of reasons why this, this, the, the country uh, survived as it did. But so and and by the way, um, during the period right before the collapse, you have to understand the, the Cubans were practicing the Green Revolution. Uh, uh, Cuba was the largest user of chemical fertilizers and pesticides in Latin America, and you know a farm machinery. They had the big tractor, so they were really industrialized uh, agriculture up until that that point. And fifty percent, getting back to Kevin's point of the. Uh, agricultural land was devoted to coffee, tobacco, and sugarcane. And these are the vestiges, right, the left of the plantations. I mean, it, there were some really, really bad things happening in, in Cuba. By the way, and it wasn't just Cuba. It's Puerto Rico, it's Philippines, that all date back to the, you know, the, really sort of the end of the Spanish-American War, the, the Treaty of Paris, the Platt Amendment. There were some real, really egregious things that were happening to those countries. And one of them was that, that you know, again, the U.S. took much of that land away from the, 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 the family farmers and, 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 you know, created these plantations. Um, so they were using double amount of chemical fertilizers as U.S. farmers, double the amount that was used by U.S. farmers. Um, and 40 to 60 percent of Cuban soils were deficient in organic matter and 48% of the soils suffer from erosion. Now, this is something we all know. I mean, there, there are reasons why we, we're promoting and talk about sustainable agriculture. Cuba is a prime example of what happens when you, you, you really go overboard with, well, so is the United States, for that matter. I mean, we, and you, you take a look at, again, the, the soil structure in this, in, the, in this country. But it was a pretty dire situation. So they were faced with literally a life-or-death situation. Either you've got the Cuban government went to both farmers and non-farmers, right? And they said land will be available to grow food for Cubans. But you've got to do it with almost no without access to chemical fertilizers, pesticides, and very little petroleum. By the way, and because of the lack of petroleum, that was one of the major reasons why there was the growth, as you can probably well imagine, in urban agriculture, right? Because there was no way to transport. Pernar del Rio, out in the western, you know, the western tip is where there's the, you know, the large areas of agricultural land, but it's you know, two hours or two and a half hours, say, from Havana, let's say, to Pernar del Rio. So without petroleum, or even if you had a little bit, the cost would make it prohibitive to do that. So urban agriculture was not a, um, something that was done because it sounded nice and it was sort of a nice thing to do. It, all of this... All of this was done out of necessity, not ideology, not in protest to the chemical, you know, the, you know, uh, the industrial agriculture, but because they were faced with their life or, or death situation. I will say, though, it's sort of interesting, forced into that situation, as it, you know, that's really the, the, the birth of agroecology. But you, you read their literature now, 
And I'll tell you, you read their books and their literature on their, their agriculture, agroecology, it could have been written by uh, Rachel Carson, Wendell Berry. They are promoters, proponents. They understand what they did out of necessity is actually benefited not only their health, but the land. And they are real proponents and real advocates for um, that particular type of agriculture. Um, that situation, the life or death situation, gave rise to the, um, to the agroecology movement. I don't know if have folks seen this movie, The, the Power of... of community, and it's interesting, sort of the subtitles, How Cuba Survived Peak Oil. And, and in essence, really, that's sort of what, you know, what they did and what the situation that was created there is what we're facing in this country right now. Getting back to Kevin, you know, every ecological system is in, you know, we, is in serious, uh, serious shape. A lot of it obviously done because of the, our reliance on, 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 on fossil fuels. But they were in a situation and said, what, what would we do? What could this country do if we were forced? And we're starting to think about that, by the way, in our little corner of the country in, in, in northeastern uh, or New England, right? We, we've undertaken a regional policy. We've asked ourselves, uh, how much food could, could we feed ourselves in New England? We're looking regionally. We're sort of, you know, this isn't sort of out of a, it, it's, it's a practical approach to trying to figure out what our resource base is. But ours is academic. This was very real. Uh, no question about it. Um, so they designed from, from the bottom up. They consulted their, their ancestors. They, they consulted friendly nations, right, who had access and, and were, were practicing um, uh, organic and uh, agricultural permaculture. But the, the basic strategies you, you're probably aware of, right? It's polyculture, getting away, you know, diversifying, because that's what you're going to do. You know, you've got to feed people. Our agricultural system, the market for most of the, the sort of the commodity, industrial agriculture, in the U.S., the market is Wall Street. It's not Main Street, right? It's selling commodities and to the international market. And, the, you know, the, the, when we hear that the, uh, the family farm in, 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 in the United States is, it can't, is uneconomical, right? And it can't muster, and that's the reason why they're going out. That's not true. There was a conscious decision on the part of the United States and conscious policy decision. You go back to Nixon and Earl Butts, when, and Butts was very proud of the fact that only 5% of the Americans had to, to be on the land and farm the land, but that was a conscious decision. When, when you look at how they characterize food in the United States Department of Agriculture, wheat, soybeans, corn, the stuff that is destined for, for export, they're called commodity crops. The things that I grow, or you grow in California, the things we grow in Massachusetts, spinach, Kale, potatoes, apples, peaches, uh, sweet corn. You know what that's called? Specialty crops. Those are specialty crops. And the big stuff is the commodity stuff. And so, but even the language suggests, and by the way, who, who qualified for the subsidies? It was not the specialty crops. You got little grants. We got grants. We had to scramble in Massachusetts to get a grant to do some of our work. Whereas, the, you know, you take away the water subsidies, I hate to say it, from some large, large farms here, you're not going to have the farm. So th this was a, an, an interesting sort of um, comprehensive approach to say what are the tools and techniques that are available to us for us to meet this incredible challenge. I'm not going to dwell on this, but, but basically, you know, if you compare agroecology with industrial, uh, um, uh, industrial agriculture, every... Every side on the left, what you get are beneficial impacts and even the unintended consequences, the things that you didn't quite predict, are almost always beneficial. 
instead of, and, and it's just the opposite. That's a, that's a sky part. Now, you know, and this is sort of underground, but soil structure. And, you know, we've had a, a couple of talks here earlier today, and we talk about the, 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 the implications for climate change of this are pretty significant, right? Because we do realize that most people understand that biomass is, you know, stores a lot of carbon. So we talk, you know, we've got folks here who are doing work to, to save rainforest, which is really important to save that biomass. Soils, well, I mean, healthy soils, well-structured soils can store as much carbon as the biomass above. And some people think even more, but not if it's not, again, when you, when you just pump in, you know, chemicals, nitrogen, phosphorus, and, 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 and in the form of, of chemical fertilizers and pesticides, you destroy the structure. You destroy the soil's capacity and its ability to actually store carbon and to create the compounds it stores. So, um, again, sort of inadvertently, what the Cubans were doing was, was creating a truly sustainable agriculture economy. And it included farmers' markets. Uh, getting back a little bit to what Kevin said, because this was such a dire situation, the Cuban government said, we're going to give the farmers, small farmers in Cuba, a little bit more latitude to start to explore private enterprise. They still said for a lot of the farmers, a, a certain percentage of your produce that you grow, and this, by the way, listen to what they're, listen to this very carefully, has got to go to public institutions, schools, and hospitals. Sell at a predetermined price, but we're going we're to make sure that food gets to our schools, our hospitals, and we, the government, are going to get some of it. But then they told these small farmers, you can start to experiment with farmers' markets. You can start to experiment in the private sector to see if you, what, what happens there. But they also said this, that if things get rough, so things, there's a downturn, they said, we will not let, we will not let the market drive what happens in our agricultural lands. There is still this control. For instance, they said, we will never allow our um, farmers to grow biofuels for cars over food for people. Yeah. Never. Now, that, that's not to say they couldn't happen, they said, but if it comes down to it and all of a sudden, they said, you know, in this country, what we say is, well, the market says it's, you're going to make more money, biofuels, so that's what you should do. They say, no, the people come first. I mean, and people miss this point over and over again that there is, that's sort of a, a big driver. But um, animal power, permaculture, organic, you know, local, I did, one of the things I didn't put in there, but I'm going to get to it, are the, the, the co-ops. Because this was not just the growing techniques of agroecology. It's cooperatives, which started to, to form there, but also, and this is probably the most, this incredible farmer-to-farmer -farmer network of exchanging technical information and, and research on the farm. I mean, really, and, and to the point where they said, you know, we, we still understand that extension, because they do have an extension service similar to what we have here at universities. But, and, and it's interesting, in our visit, when we went there, even their researchers said their extension is suffering from the same sorts of problems that U.S. extension um, suffers from. And this was, the, this was the Cubans who said, they said, those who have the money determine what the research agenda is. And for instance, in Massachusetts, it's tough for a Massachusetts farmer to get data or information that's relevant to a Massachusetts New England farm because it's the large corporations that provide the funding and they could care less about a New England farm. New England farms don't matter to them. They want to see research that's going to benefit their industrial agriculture, and that's what they fund. In this case, when you look at Cuba, but, and not just Cuba, it's sort of interesting, La Villa Campesina, right? Throughout Latin America, you have these powerful networks that are structured, that have a, 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 a system for exchanging information. And by the way, in Cuba, 
Um, in many of the cases, there, women are the major leaders and organizers of these networks. And they're really promoting, you know, and actually they're based family. They're, these are truly family farms. So family units are key. Women are key players in determining sort of the structure and keeping this membership strong in, in these co-ops. So the, this has been, it's interesting, been hidden from us for, um, because of our um, relationship. No, it's not going to happen. Come on now. Just do it, will you? Gentle. It's a hotel. See, it's just, it's, okay. Well, you, you know. There. <laughs> it, it obviously doesn't like this. So, you know, we'll, we'll skip over this, I guess. Uh, the only thing I really wanted to show you was that there is a great deal. Animal traction. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to skip it. I'll, I'll take it wherever it takes me now. We'll go there. But the, but the animal traction, whether it was oxen, mules, Horses. Um, when when we talked to um, folks at um, one of the uh, the Ministry of Agriculture when we were there, they said one of the first things we we were kind of a little puzzled because one of the first things when the urban agriculture program was established, one of the first things they did was grow grain for um, hooved animals. We said, what? You're, wait, you know, we're thinking about the pyramids. You're growing grain for? I mean, you're starving and you're doing. But then they quickly qualify to say, oh, it's, it's, it's cattle for traction. It's, that's, that's our power. That's how we plow the fields. That's how we cart things around. So it wasn't for eating. It was, that was a, the, the system was coming together. We need those animals for traction. We need to provide food for them. And we're going to care for them. So that became one of their, one of their priorities. Um, this just actually really, um, compares the two sort of approaches. The, the, the formal extension service is still very powerful. And it's still very Cubans. You know, all the things that Kevin said, there's the health care, um, there's the education, and science. I mean, the, the, the science is through the roof in terms of their research and the work they're doing in, in all areas of science. I'm going to back up just one, one bit because there's something else very important to mention because we're now talking this farmer-to-farmer -farmer network. One of the first things that, in 1959 that, that happened um, after the revolution was um, something called the literacy campaign, Right. Um, and the, 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 Kevin's you know, uh, graph that shows where Cuba ranks in terms of literacy, right after the revolution, the, almost the entire countryside was illiterate. All, I mean, just they couldn't, write, they couldn't read, nor could they write. Fidel Castro said, we have to educate them. Now, I don't know if that, to me, doesn't sound like someone who said, I'm going to total control, because I've now got a population that can't read or write. I've got total control. I'm going to educate everyone. And there were, he recruited people, mostly young people, Many of them women, 14, 15-year-old. I, I didn't have the picture here, but they were, they, they were marching down the streets. with. The, and you thought they were rifles, like over their shoulders. They were giant pencils. They were pencils, right? And, and many, of the, many of the fathers and the families said they didn't want their, 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 young, their, their, their daughters going off into the countryside because this, one of the, at the height of this, at the height of this, the embargo happened, right? And said, so, oh, my God, now we're really in trouble. You know, the U.S. is going to come in and all sorts of bad things are going to happen. In a film, um, boy, Catherine, Catherine Murphy uh, did a film. It's called Maestra. It's a teacher. And she, it's about the illiteracy, the literacy campaign. They're interviewing women who are now in their 70s. And they talk about working on that campaign. Tears well up in their eyes at 70 years old when they talk about what they did. And they say it was the most fulfilling work I've ever done in my entire life. 
And so right now, you know, again, you, and I don't know that, but that really helps set the stage. None of probably none of this sort of stuff, the farmer to farmer, it still could have happened. But had there not been that commitment to say we are going to educate, uh, who knows, right? So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but agrarian decentralization, the, the revolution was an agrarian revolution, right? I mean, it really was based on redistributing land for the most part because of what had happened prior to that, you know, during, uh, uh, you know, prior to the revolution when, again, U.S. dominated, came in, took over, there were plantations everywhere. Um, so there is now the, the Cuban National Association of Small Farmers. Members of are now sort of coming together. Over 100,000 families have joined the agroecology movement since 1997. 100,000. And, 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 and these are these are families. And so there is this strong grassroots for what they've created, and, and, and they're very committed to it. And then they have the state-owned worker co-ops, they have the agricultural production co-ops, and these credit and service uh, co-ops. And it, I knew it was going to come, right? I, I, I would have been hurt if it did happen to me, because I would have felt like... Um, I'm, a couple of just co-op status here. The, again, you've got the service co-ops, which means the, the service co-ops are, are uh, farmers that come together, they keep their own land, but they collaborate to uh, get a better deal on services, like you know, buying equipment, sharing equipment, but they still own their farms individually. The production um, co-ops are actual, where they actually pool their land, pool their resources, they work together as co-ops, and the UBPC are, are the, the old state um, farms that have become co-ops. But you, th this is just to kind of give you, you know, people are doing the data. They're looking and seeing, and seeing the division between the, you know, the number of members, percentage of Cuban workforce, Still, the vast majority of Cuban workforce is government, right? That's where most of the, the folks work. But you're, we're seeing a lot more happening now in areas of agriculture. Now, look at the difference, though, between sort of the, uh, the, the production of crops from the state farms, which is the blue, and you can kind of see how that works, right, as it goes around, and then how much the crops are produced now in, in the, these new co-ops. So, you know, upwards of 80 percent. Um, and, and right now, most folks will tell you again, I, I think Kevin alluded to this as well, in Havana, for instance, 60 to 80% of the fruits and vegetables. Now, again, they're go you're going to hear this discrepancy about how much they're still importing. The things you can't grow in Cuba, and some of it's because it's just too hot, things like grains and stuff, so they have to import those. But the things that they can grow, the, the 60 to 70% of the fruits and vegetables consumed in Havana come from urban farms. Urban farms. So, you know, and you're talking patios, you're talking suburban, you're talking exurban, but they're growing just about everywhere. One of the interesting questions that's coming up now is what's going to happen when, because it's going to be inevitable, among other things, when the, there's going to be urban redevelopment. It's got to be, right? Because, you know, the, in Havana, the, the infrastructure, I mean, the, the, you, know, you probably know, the buildings crumble, they fall. You know, people are living in them, all of a sudden, they will just collapse because there's been so little attention because of lack of resources to deal with it. But the question is, if they start to redevelop, will they value the urban agriculture that's been there? Will they accommodate that? Can, can they accommodate that? Can you start to re, rebuild and, and still say, you know what, these, these and whether it's patios or, 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 or organoponicals, can, we, can they survive? And I think it's going to be it's still an open question. Don't know how that's going to sort of pan out. Um, you, you may not be able to see this, but this is sort of, Interesting, this is, the, uh, again, sort of percentage and contribution of peasant agriculture to the total production. Um, we're looking at, at root crops. Um, I can't see some of that. Maize. So anyway, the, 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 the lighter bar is 1989, and the darker bar is 2008 after uh, the agro, uh, agroecology. So you can see that sort of skyrocketing. But down here 
it's um, this, this dark number here. This is the 2007 ag agri um, the agrichemical use, right? And then um, the uh, production of um, crops in 1994 and in 2007. So here's the, the, the chemical use, and here's the production from uh, uh, 2007 um, uh, for, for uh, tubers, vegetables, and you're shooting up the one that goes down, right, is sugarcane. No chemicals, no sugarcane. And so these are real numbers, these are real figures, these are real results that are coming um, as a result. Um, real quick, Kevin did some of this, 11 million inhabitants, about 6.6 .6 million hectares or, or 16 million acres of cultivable land, 100,000 peasant farms on 2.5 million acres, 100, see, it went up. It was 100,000 two slides ago. This thing is just going like crazy. Now it's 110,000, all right? See, it's just even as we speak, the thing is growing like crazy. And 65% um, of the nation's fresh vegetables and fruits, 383. And when you did yours, it was a little There are 383 urban farms on 123,000 acres, supply 70% of the fresh vegetables in cities like Havana. And half of the, the land, uh, agricultural land, is uncultivated. But there's some people who have their eyes on that. And they're not from Cuba. Just some shops. There's different farms. And just to kind of give you a sense, and again, um, of, of the diversity of agriculture that's, that's, that's there. And it's, a it's breathtakingly beautiful. I, I don't know who else. I mean, of course, you know, the islands, the, the, the Caribbean islands. But it is just incredibly gorgeous. And here's a little known. I mean, you should probably understand this, too, because you've probably seen the um, results. The, uh, the coral reefs of Cuba are incredibly healthy. Very, the healthiest anywhere else in the world. One of the questions is, is that because of the lack of fertilizers and pesticides? And of course there's a connection. Of course there is. You know what they called it on, and the, you've probably seen the public television, they call it the accidental Eden. The accidental Eden, because of course, you know, they don't really care. But you know, there, there, there are some incredible results there. The, um, also, just this is a farmer's market at the Alamar um, Cooperative, so they're allowing that to happen. This is, a, uh, this is on one of the organic farms. They're actually having on-farm meals. We had, it, I think it must have been a 12-course meal. Everything, I mean, it was just unbelievably, every single thing was delicious. Everything that was provided came from, from the farm. Now, this is one of the, um, I think it's Paladars, so where you have private homes that now become restaurants. This was obviously one that was left over from the uh, prior regime because it was ornate. It was incredibly, you know, it, uh, it clocks and everything in the, in the, in the midst. But here's, it, here's an interesting piece. The, the gentleman back there with the, uh, in the white shirt and the bow tie, a doctor. And, and, and the fact is that because of the structure, he can make more money waiting tables and he can as a doctor right now and that's you know that's part of the the, the situation there and there's um and he was very smart though he um he because they have two you know two currencies right the cook and then they have the the peso with the pesos 127th of the cook and then and, and if you're cuban you deal with the with the with the peso and it's got a picture of jay on it he was very smart he said look at this and he said it's not ver worth very much and he gave it to us as souvenirs so of course we had to tip him. Right? <laughs> he had to give him a pretty good tip. So he was a and, and then there's or this is um, a, a a new high end organic restaurant that's um, in, in the Pinar del Rio region. So they really are sort of striking out and finding ways to support their farmers a lot more. This gives you again sort of snapshot. You can see where most of the imported stuff come from. It's vegetable oils, oil crops, cereals, pulses, you know, uh, uh, beans and stuff, meat 
and seafood. But then look at when you get down to the to the other things like the you know that that can be grown there. They aren't importing those. They're, they're producing them themselves. So it's, you know, I, I don't know that we can ever talk about being totally self-sufficient anywhere. I mean, it's tough to do that because of climate and terrain, whatever. But in terms of what they are doing, it's, it's fairly incredible. So interesting quote. Cuba has, has disproved the myth that an organic agriculture cannot maintain a modern nation. This comes from the World Bank. So the admission that this is going on, and it's been cloaked. None of, we, we've had no idea this was going on because of the you know, again, the, the, the relationships are here. But now we're, we're in a new era. So we have renewed relations uh, between Cuba and the U.S., and that doesn't necessarily bode well. When we ask a lot of folks, now, remember, we were there in October 2014, so that was two months or so before the handshake and before there was any mention. So when we were there, and I, I don't know, you know, there was not even a murmur that, that, things were, that there were even discussions. But we ask a lot of people. We ask farmers, we ask economists, we ask uh, folks in the ministry, if the embargo is lifted, um, um, do you want the embargo lifted? And if it's lifted, what would happen? And most of them sort of said, the, the embargo has hurt us. We want to see it lifted, and we're definitely afraid of what will happen if it is lifted. As a matter of fact, one of the officials in the ministry said, I, for the life of me, I don't understand all those folks who wanted to see us disappear. Why did they just lift the embargo? We would have been overwhelmed by your culture and your money. He said, I don't know that we could have resisted. So what you've done, what you did in essence, or at least what the government did, was, was bolster our position. You made us stronger by imposing the embargo, and you probably could have had this whole thing done and with because, you know, we walked down the street with, um, we found a local uh, artist who was making paper mache models, and he happened to have a, um, he packed one of them in an old Nike box. And we walked down the street, and we were mobbed. I said, where'd you get the Nikes? Where'd you get the Nikes? And it was not Nikes, it's just paper mache. But there, there's that, there really is that hunger. And so what's going to happen there, we don't know. We do know that right after that handshake, something called the USACC formed, the United States Agricultural Coalition for Cuba. 90, 90 members strong, and... and um, it's, you'll, I'll, do, I'll tell you a little bit more about them just very shortly, but they are the, the major Cargill, a Cargill representative is one of the, um, the chairs of it, and you've got all the major commodities, and within days they had a, they had a delegation of 90 people uh, in Cuba saying we want to export. And I'm going to show you something. We formed something, this is, you know, at the, at the Schumacher Center called the Cuba-U.S. Agroecology Network. And what we're doing is pulling together folks from the U.S. who support sustainable agriculture and support the peasant farming revolution in Cuba to set up a farmer-to-farmer -farmer across the Florida Straits between our farmers, not just farmers, food systems. We've got Slow Foods. We've got the Environmental Defense Fund. We've got Southern Black Farmers. We've got urban farmers who basically are now sort of pulling together a network and want to start to collaborate with our Cuban farmers because... Let's face it, they have a wealth of information. They can tell us a lot about, and this is interesting, they can tell us a lot about their techniques for growing without chemicals, but they have tons of questions they ask, are asking us. What about these public-private partnerships? What are, what are some of our economic, because no, they admitted, and this was I, was, I was amazed at how frank many of them were about saying, we feel that the socialist experiment in economics has failed, not the, not the revolution, the social gains, absolutely. Medicine, um, uh, education, a whole bit. But in terms of economics, this hasn't worked. So we've got to find something else. But they were clear 
We were at the Martin Luther King Center, and Pastor Suarez says, we're not talking about capitalism. It's not capitalism. But we've got to come away a little from here towards here, so that's where the solidarity, the social solidarity movement, the emphasis on co-ops, worker-owned, which is, you know, again, very different. But we've got to figure out something to, to that. So we're going we're gonna to sort of work with them as, as best we can. Um, this was a piece that did be right after that, but it did, and that's not my headline. That was the, 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 the Boston Globe's headline. It said, is Cuba uh, farming's future? I think a lot of us feel that it is. I mean, my sense is, is that if we're, and, and again, that's not to the total exclusion, right? I mean, we know there are going to be big farms, but if we are concerned about, as most of us are, climate change, and we're concerned about eating healthy food, and we're, talk, and we're concerned about weaning ourselves from, from the addicted, addiction to, to chemicals, what they've done is, is, is really sort of the beacon for where the future of agriculture, not just the United States, should be. But this is the question, and this is the question on you know, democracy now. Organic farming flourishes in Cuba, but can it survive entry of U.S. agribusiness? And that is the question that everybody's asking over and over again, including this free Wi-Fi person, because they just know that this is a big question that they, that's, that's got to be answered. So here's, this is from the website of the uh, U.S. Um, Agricultural Coalition for Cuba. But it is interesting, just the wording here, an increased exchange of ideas, knowledge, capital, and credit will benefit both countries. We strive to turn Cuba from an enemy to an ally, from an enemy to an ally. And so it's sort of like, you know, that's, and so you can see some of the, you know, some of the, 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 the organizations there. This is from our website that I hope you will visit. This is a, the Cuba-U.S. Agroecology Network. Our idea is to share information and practice sustainability uh, that meet local food needs and sort of working with, with, our, with our Cuban counterparts. Um, this just kind of gives you a list. These are, these are the members. This is, and it's a growing list. It's sort of like that list of... Um, number of, of, of farms that went from 100,000 to 110,000. The next slide, I'm going to show you that this even grown further. No, it, this, is, this is it so far. But what we do have, you can see uh, Hawthorne Valley Farm. We've got Eco Cuba, Environmental Defense Fund. Farm Hack, I don't know if you, this is a group in, in Massachusetts that has an open source website where they're sharing techniques and technologies that small farmers are coming with to deal with everything from tractors to other types of technologies that they share openly online. Now, again, that's probably Cuba. We know some of the issues with the Internet there, but that may be something um, that could also enhance the, what's going on there. But, but even the folks at FarmHack said is we don't want to do anything that, that's going to destroy or undermine that direct farmer-to-farmer contact. That is so important. You want to keep that going. And, you know, but there's some times when it may not be possible just because of, of distance. Um, here's the ongoing question, right? The, you know, the, we, we did this because the, the, it's been an academic question for so long. Can you do this? Can you, can you support a, a country ag agricultural techniques? You've got folks on the chemical side saying it can't be done. You have academics who said it can't be done. And then all of a sudden, excuse me, wait, you know, we, we're doing it. You guys are arguing this back and forth academically, and we are a living example of what's going on. But it's not your fault that you didn't know we were doing it because we had, you've had these blinders on. Some of the things I'm ending here that we're trying to do, these are just some ideas that we're, we're thinking that this collaborative, the U.S. agricultural, uh, uh, Cuba-U.S. Um, uh, agricultural network, soils. We talked about soils. I'll be very quick here, but think about it. Cuba, over the years, has gone from being the largest user of chemicals, right, pesticides and, and herbicides, and then they made a transition. So you've got soils there that were heavily farmed with heavy farm equipment and chemicals that then made the transition to agroecology. 
What did that do to the structure of the soils? Can we, there's a, that's almost like, it's almost like researchers say, boy, this is like so much information. And then you've got some virgin soils. Some of those urban farms were probably never farmed. They were for another purpose, but now they're growing food. So you have a probably unique opportunity to compare the structure of soils because some farms are still chemicals. Still got some tobacco farms, right? And, and, and some, some sugarcane farms are still using chemicals. Then you've got the farms that went through the transition. Then you've got some virgin soil. That's just kind of gives you a, a getting away from theory to some of the actual things. Um, uh, agroecology, and, and there is a growing U.S. social solidarity movement. And especially in some of our urban neighborhoods, especially in some of our urban neighborhoods of people of color, who said, we got to do something different. We need a different way to deal with the economy. What can we learn? Can we start to do this? And by the way, that is in Cuba, and that's the Martin Luther King uh, Center um, in, in, in Cuba. And, and that is not just for show. That is real. That is, that is very sincere. And that's it. Thank you. So thank you very much. We thought we'd leave a lot of time for uh, discussion in the room, seeing as we've got so many smart people in the room. I just, Greg brought up one thing. I just wanted to give you this one story. We're out in western Cuba in Pinar del Rio province, and we're on a tobacco farm, a family farm. It's a, a husband and wife and a few kids. And the farmer's showing us everything, you know, the drying barn. Somebody asked him about uh, pesticide. What do you do for pesticide? He holds up a tobacco leaf, he tears out the spine, he says, you throw a bunch of these in a barrel of water, yep. leave them in there for a while, you spray that water on the plants, kills all the bugs. So those of you who are still smoking cigarettes, and so somebody <laughs> says, somebody says, oh, I noticed you don't have a tractor, you know, sort of like passive aggressive. A lot of, it's like a disease in America. Wow, we've heard what's wrong about Cuba. You have rationing. Oh yeah, we don't have rationing here. It's called money rationing, <laughs> duh. So he says, oh no, uh, I have oxen, a tractor. He said, we had American tractors, we had Russian tractors, we have Chinese tractors, so you gotta buy the tractor, you gotta buy parts, you gotta put fuel in it, it breaks down, you gotta have somebody who knows how to fix it. He says, that cow over there eats grass, shits fertilizer, and I can eat him. <laughs> Can't do that with a tractor. So then he shows us how to roll cigars, and it's beautiful, he's doing it like an artist, you know? and he seals it with a little bit of honey. And, and somebody says, do you have any to sell? He pulls out this big satchel, and he's got them wrapped in packs of, and forget the cigarette and you know, smoking, you don't inhale cigars anyway. And he's got them wrapped packs of 10 with a banana leaf and a little vine tied in a bow, you know, like it was done in the gift shop at Filene's or something, you know. And He's selling them for 20 bucks a pack of 10. That's two bucks per Cuban cigar. If you could get a Cuban cigar, that is if you were Arnold Schwarzenegger or you know, Jay Leno or somebody like that, yeah, but it'd be 60, 70, 80 dollars for each cigar. So I'm getting a great deal getting a pack. I don't smoke, but I gave them to a neighbor friend who loves cigars. I'm getting a great deal. This guy in 10 minutes made two years of income. And that's because of the global inequality. And that's what the fair trade movement is about. If you're buying coffee, tea, cocoa, et cetera, that's marked with the fair trade symbol, it's transferring that little bit of wealth from us that's so little, like fair trade certified coffee. I'm proud to say I was the first board of directors chairman of, of Transfer USA, which became Fair Trade USA, the fair trade certifying symbol on all sorts of products now. That's transferring millions and millions of dollars to people in the global south who work their asses off to provide our dessert products, basically. 
And for us, you don't even feel it. In a cup of fair trade certified coffee, you're paying maybe a few pennies extra. It's stuff you wouldn't pick up off the sidewalk. So the inequality created by global capitalism allows us to create a new system where we connect wealthy parts of the world and wealthy people like us with the poor in very direct ways. Check out Indigenous Designs. It's a clothing company based up here in Sebastopol. They produce in Guatemala. When you shoot the barcode of one of their shirts or pants, it gives you a video interview with the woman who made that article of clothing and her family. And that's just starting, okay? We're going to go from indicia, oh, is that the correct fair trade symbol? Oh, gee, I can't remember. You know, yeah, it's really difficult, right? Uh, to just shoot the barcode and you get all the information about it, right? So there's a lot of really good stuff going on. The world that is sucks. The world that could be keeps getting better. And the distance between the two keeps getting greater. When we convince people, you don't need to live in that world that sucks. You can live in this better world it unleashes a lot of spiritual energy. And I think we all need to go out of this conference pumped up and, and make the first ever global revolution, right? That's, that's what this is. It's the first ever global revolution, a global values revolution. Instead of having money values rule over the life cycle, we'll have life values rule over the money cycle. We'll subordinate the economy to us. Yeah. So we must have questions, comments, criticism in the audience. Lady by the door, yes. Best paid workers. It, 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 yeah, it, they are. They, the farmers are paid better than doctors or most other professions. Be, but that is because they have been given sort of this this latitude, among other things, um, and, and including sort of being able even to. By the way, they they were given permission to form the cooperatives, and this is right now. There is a a group that because of the um, the renewed relations, where Cuba is now also allowing other sectors to explore the development of co-ops. But it is, it's the families. These are all, these, these are, the, 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 the land, remember this was a redistribution of land. These are uh, uh, acreages or hectares that were, that were assigned, but they were based on what was a manageable farm for a family. And they really based it on family and they based it on using oxen, obviously, because it's not, this is, and you know, that was the question that, um, um, when I did this and, and, and did this presentation in Massachusetts, Mo Tugas, who was a good friend, but he's a farmer from my days at the, the Department of Agriculture, asked the same question. What are their labor issues? <laughs> that, it's your family. No, that's really what they, and that's sort of, and that's why you have so many of them. I mean, again, you've got hundreds of thousands, and they're, they're moderately medium-sized because they are actually, that's the, it's, it's the design, right? It's not just a, it's not driven by how much money you can make on how much acreage is, how much can be managed reasonably and keep the family unit strong and the one that's managing the farm. That, that really is part of the, the philosophy. Yeah. You mentioned um, you bought two cigars for $20. I said that. Yeah. Oh, you bought two cigars. If they can start selling commodities like that to the richer countries, People are going to want to do that type of thing instead of making food. How would that disrupt people doing 
the, the only thing I will say there is I, I go back to my, um, there's still, remember, the, the, the land is not, um, the land is still in usufruct. There's still the, the government owns the land, and it's long-term leases. And there are some conditions to what, uh, you know, that long-term lease. And it's the same thing as I mentioned before. Someone could be tempted to, to say, I'm going to build, I'm going to grow corn for biofuels. Then you're going to lose that land. That, that's all I'm saying right now. That's the way that it's structured. And I do think, you know, you can say what you want to about the role of government and should government be involved and is that heavy-handed. But the fact is that the goal is what's in the best interest of society as a whole. And what is it, we, what is it that, that is essential to provide? And it gets back to education, health care, in this case, food. And so that's where they, you know, we would cry foul why are you why are you dictating? But because you know it was interesting. I don't know if you saw the article in, in the um, I think it was the New York Times when Cal when you guys were going through a, through a drought and and uh, see I forget where I am sometimes right, but but and they talked about the fact that there are certain crops that can't be grown or could be grown and remember almonds came under a lot of scrutiny. But they said but it's still okay to grow almonds because they bring a high market price. So here you're talking water problems you know, food, and they say you can justify growing them because they bring a good market price, and that would never pass there. And we'd say, no, that's, that's just not going to happen. You can look up in the UN General Assembly the records each year of the vote on the U.S. embargo of Cuba, and it's always 130 to 2 U.S. and Israel, or, you know, 127 to 3 U.S., Israel, and Romania, or, you know. And, and okay, so to me, that's the world speaking, and we're going to have global voting, right? Global voting is going to happen. So think, the left has already won. The progressive community, people like us, have already won globally on the basic issues. Should we continue destroying the environment or should we save it for future generations? In a global vote, we win that vote. Should we shut down all the militaries, all of it, and put it into health care and education? We win that vote. Should women have equality with men? There'd be a few assholes who'd vote against it. But we'd win that vote. The global consciousness on the most basic issues is already on our side. We don't have the guns and money but we have facts and moral authority. Facts and moral authority are way better than guns and money. And let me even flip that. In the 1980s, I was a part of a, a group that went to um, Bluefields, Nicaragua, Nicaragua after Hurricane Joan. And we were there on the Atlantic coast and we were working, and it was a group of African-Americans. Amanda sent, sent us there. And as we were walking down the roads, people came up to us and said, are you Cuban? Because they said the United States would never be here. And so they just assumed that we were Cubans coming to their aid because that's what happened all the time. And so, I mean, it, it, it's a two, it, it really does work both ways. Cuba offered the United States over 100 medical teams when Hurricane Katrina happened, and they're experts in hurricane response. They've had a lot of experience. And the Bush administration, famous for letting people die in Hurricane Katrina, refused. People don't realize, in the 1970s, the CIA introduced a swine virus into the Cuban pig population, and about 50% of Cuban pigs died because of that. 
First of all, the American people don't know anything about that historical record, and I'm just giving you one little tidbit. But what if Cuba killed half the pigs of the United States? What would happen? They'd be evaporated, right? Like we did to Afghanistan, that turned out great. In Iraq, that turned out really great. Oh, Syria, yeah, that's really great too. That's why hundreds of thousands of people are running from those parts of the world where we kill people. A report just came out, I'm sorry to go off the topic here, but it's my government and it pisses me off. 90% of our kills by drone in Afghanistan were not the intended targets. Where in life can you fail 90% of the time and still stay in power? I don't know what kind of job you got, but where I work. The question's over, yeah. Uh, yeah uh... I could continue on the rant, but maybe get a little bit more on target. Um, I've been living in Florida. I've been helping to care for elderly family there for the last year. I really miss this community. It's great to see all of you. But I'm back in Florida, and I can tell you, if Florida is going to be the model for what those firms that you were showing want to move into Cuba, we got a lot of trouble. Genetically modified tree farms. Um, We have real issues with ornamental trade down there. They spray whatever they want on those ornamentals. They have to look perfect. You know, think about that. And this is the prime agricultural land, the only subtropical land we have in the continental U.S. And it's being paved over for second homes, for strip malls. There's very little awareness of it down there. So my question to you is, A, the Cuba situation, how we prevent the takeover. But two, how can we help... South Florida to to learn from the Cubans because South Florida agriculture has a lot more to learn than they think that they're going to you know help the enemy you know this is a yeah. real serious issue on both sides of the Florida Strait and I just would really love to have your input. No offense, brother, but Southern Florida is going bye bye. <laughs> People don't realize when all the ice on this planet melts, which it is doing, this is not an if, this is a happening thing, it raises ocean levels over 200 feet. That means this will be underwater, right, along with most of Florida. Our major cities were built on ports. So what we need to do is start planting eco-levees. And eco-levees would be large mounds of rammed earth with saltwater-tolerant plants on the ocean side, very wide, so you can keep going up. Bike trails, fruit trees, park benches on top, a, a long park. And on the inland side, terraced urban agriculture. Those are all off-the-shelf technologies. Okay, you can do solar-powered desalination that nature does the work for you, small wind energy, et cetera, because you're talking trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars worth of the most expensive property in the world is going to go underwater. And that's if we stopped all the cars and stopped eating meat right now. That's going to continue. So short the stock of real estate companies that own a lot of coastal real estate and buy high ground real estate. That's your real estate play. But I, I think, let me just, I, I just respond. I think it goes, I think in, in terms of, there, there's a reason, I think, why uh, you, these large chemical, we know there's a lot of reasons why the large chemical companies don't want to have what's going on in Cuba revealed. Because if, if, if it can be revealed, then guess what? They're feeding their country and they're not using one of our products. They're not using it. So you've got a combination of demonstrating what can be done, right? And I think that's, that's part of it. The other is the education of the consumer. Right, your 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 produce does not have to be 
perfect in terms of shape and without blemishes, which is one of the reasons, and again, I realize this isn't going to do everything, but that's why when in, in our small state, when we initiated much more direct marketing, when we increased the number of farmers markets, so farmers were selling directly to consumers, and by the way, cutting out a lot of middle people, and the major beneficiaries of that type of system are the farmer and the consumer instead of the middle people, all the, no, I don't call them middle, middle men, right, in between that were soaking it up. So, so I do think that, that once... You know, my, my guru, Bucky Fuller, says, don't, you want to change things, you don't, right, somebody else, there you go, right? Not, not by criticizing what exists, but by coming up with a better model. And this is a better model. It is a better model, and it will be demonstrated. And not everyone is going to do it, but I do think that's really why we got to start, you know, educating the cons consumers as well. And, and by the way, there is a hand mic, and when you are, yes, so if you have, when we call on you or you get a question, uh, just wait for the mic, because they are recording this, and we're going to make her run like crazy. Now, watch, we're going <laughs> to, uh, we've got, how, how, why don't we do it over here, then we'll come, we'll come around, so we can. Dead air, dead air. Um, is, is Cuba going to be, be impacted by the um, raise in water? Seawater? Oh, yeah. well, is Cuba going to be impacted by the global? Um, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's a there's a sport in Havana of standing near their embarcadero, their version, you know, uh, right along the waterside when the waves, when there's a storm and the waves come crashing. We had a group, and I told some guys, "Go stand over by the wall. We'll take your picture." <laughs> and the picture came out with this wave right above their heads. Yeah. It's a very serious. It's a very serious challenge. But here again, command economy can do things like that, right? I mean, look at what New York City is spending to try and keep water out of their subways, right? After Superstorm Sandy, they got clobbered, and it's only going to get worse. That's why resilience. You know, the Rockefeller Foundation funded a hundred cities at a million dollars each to hire chief resilience officers. San Francisco has one. Berkeley has one. Oakland has one. And they're very smart people, and they're looking at okay, how do we how do we deal with earthquakes, hurricanes, rising sea levels, all that kind of stuff? It's it's starting to register. Yeah. One more thing: does um, Cuba have regulations about GMOs and and things like that? It's not controlled, or is there? I, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that. I know they do regulate pesticides, and you know, again, I I think this is going to be a matter of, of once again education and trying to get out front on this uh, as much as, as we can. And again, I just want to point out one other thing about your first question, though. You know, you know Cuba has just sort of also gone through a pretty serious drought. They, they were actually almost praying that they would get the rain from one of the passing hurricanes, but not the wind, because they were, they were ready to, they were looking at seeding clouds because it, it was so tough. So the vagaries of agriculture, or I mean, uh, yeah, you know, of being a farm and, and the vagaries of weather and, and climate, are, you're still not going to be able to avoid them altogether. GMOs, um, you know, again, that's not going to... I think the best hope and the most optimistic thing is to say about the Cuban agriculture of resisting this is that um, ANOP, that National Small Farmer Association, that farmer-to-farmer -farmer network, 100 and... I think it's now 150,000. What was it, 110 a little while ago? But 100,000 <laughs> farmers, uh, families, families strong, I do think, uh, and understanding, um, it, it, especially, I, you know, here's the thing. It, it's, as we get further and further along, some of the younger people, and because this happens here too, the history gets kind of forgotten. 
right? What the struggle was. And, 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 no and offense to you young people. Not, no, no offense whatsoever. But there is, a, you know, Kevin uh, uh, talked about some, some things that are going on with the, you know, the, the, the poisoning of pigs. There's a very fascinating book, and I'm going to forget the author, but it's called Back Channel to Cuba. And it chronicles the two Castros and 10 U.S. presidents. And, and it relies entirely upon either direct quotes or memos and everything documented. And the conclusion at the end, and this was an American author, what's, I, I just can't remember his name, but you can obviously, everybody can Google now. Peter so Cornblue. That's right, that's right. Yeah, and, and then one other, but it's back channel to Cuba. And, and his, he, he says, you know what, almost, these entire negotiations, the back channel, Cuba almost always, there was a stuck to principle. And the United States almost always made decisions because of politics. And, and this is from Eisenhower through Obama. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a fascinating, I mean, it's like 300 pages. And I, I, I won't tell you it's a, it's a bar, a page, it is a page turner. Because it, you know, for, for me, almost every individual, I recognize him, right? Because I was born in 1949, and so here's 1959. But I mean, like from the Eisenhowers to the, to the you know, Nixons and Kennedys. And, and it's like, you got to be kidding me. And there were times. I mean, you read these quotes when, you know, you know I, I don't even, you don't have to tell you, Alexander Haig, Henry Kissinger, they said, just blow the bleeping folks off the map. What are we doing? Why are we letting this guy thumb his nose at us? And th there's no question that just opening a little crack, what they've been able to pres preserve, what's going on, what happened in Cuba, by the way, was paralleled. I don't know if you know this, but it's paralleled. We were doing almost the exact same thing in Puerto Rico. The, we, installed, we installed a governor to, in Puerto Rico, our possession, from Kansas. They forbid them to speak Spanish. You could not display the Puerto Rican flag, right? I mean, this was going, and this, this governor that they, and I forget his name, but this, this is all, from Kansas, by the time he left, he was actually booted out because he was so bad, and when he left, he was the CEO of Domino Sugar. And, and so this, this, and, and this still goes back to that Treaty of Paris, right? The end of the Spanish-American War, Philippines, Puerto Rico, Cuba. They were just treated as if they were just like, you know, they are ours and we're going to do whatever we need to do. They will be our playgrounds. They will be our plantation. We will just do whatever. And it is, it's, a, it's, it's appalling. It's an appalling history. That, that's all I can say. So. I just, oh, well, I just I just want to add one thing. It, it, it relates to a lot of people, a lot of Americans, when you say get rid of the embargo, they say, oh, but then Walmart and McDonald's will go in there and wreck the whole place. Cubans aren't stupid. They're not stupid. They've been dealing with foreign companies for a long time. They know what they're doing. Well, along exactly the same lines, how can Cuba resist the intrusions of Monsanto and Cargill and Syngenta when they start moving in after the embargo? What can Cuba actually do to protect themselves? Well, these are, this is all done by contracts around tables and negotiations with Cuban officials who are very smart. They're way smarter than me and way smarter than a lot of the political people I've worked with in this country who hold positions of power. And you get to meet them and you find out they're dumb shits. You know, in the sense of not caring about the impacts of their policies, that people are dying because of our ignorance. And it goes all the way back to Columbus saying, oh, these people are so stupid, they touched my sword and cut their hand. With 50 soldiers, we can conquer them and make them our slaves. 
duh, and it's imperialist consciousness. We're the empire. We have 865 military bases outside our country, and you and I are paying for that. There's over 200 military golf courses that we're paying for, you know? No, sorry. And can I tell you, and they've got a question here, but just to follow up on that, we, we're small, I mean, you know, look, Schumacher Center for a New Economic, we're a small nonprofit, right? We think we have about six employees, right, in, in, in Great Barrington. But, but networking is a powerful deal. And this is, when, this is when the power of social networks. So we put together this, you know, you saw some of the folks who are part of this Cuba-U.S. agroecology network, right? So we're, we're there. Now, we're going um, um, to Cuba on Sunday. As a matter of fact, I'm leaving here. I fly to Miami tomorrow, and then we're going to fly to, to, to Cuba on Sunday. We've got a week's meetings with a number of officials and the, you know, the, the ministry and all of them. We're going to be going back. for the, There's a fifth annual um, international conference of agroecology and cooperatives that is being hosted in Cuba in November, Thanksgiving week. They don't have Thanksgiving, so no football for me that, that time. But, he, but here's what's interesting. And kept, the head negotiator, when, and by the way, in Cuba, it's Josefina Vidal. It's a woman. And she is she's tough. She's really tough. And she, I, I don't know, you know, she's not going to give in. This thing could go on forever. But this is what's very interesting. You ready for this? This is the, us little Cuba, Cusan, Cuba. Josefina Vidal is going to meet with us. I mean, can you imagine it happening in the U.S. if we were, this, we're coming here and we said we're, we're supporting this, this you know, agri, organic agriculture, agriculture. We'd like to meet with your head negotiator. I'm sure they, if they said anything to us, it would not be repeatable. So uh, it, it, there's a different mentality. They are very, very, they're not, they, they know what can happen if they just, I mean, that's why they resisted up until this point, just even letting in and everything that we, we, I won't say everything, okay, because I'm sure. That, but when we say oppressive, the Internet, you know, they, they, the United States has the Radio Marti, and they, they do these radio programs, and it's all propaganda. And, and they've got a, it's, it's like a 25, it's, it's like an incredible budget. It's like $25 million to do these fake radio programs, and everybody knows they're fake, and the Cubans know they're coming, and they block it. But, but you can't, so it's, so it's just a very weird situation we have here that this little tiny country is such a threat to this power, quote, unquote. But you've been trying to talk. Uh, but yes, you got it. Aloha from the Maui Buffalo. Aloha. Uh, 25 years on Maui, and I have Buffalo because I came from Kansas and I brought the Buffalo energy with. So I know the story you're talking about. My undergraduate work, I did uh, Cuba economy you know, as an th undergraduate thesis. Two of my teachers were E.F. Schumacher and Bucky Fuller back in the days because it did the, the solar energy work for President Carter in Kansas when it was a liberal state before 1980. <laughs> so it, things do change in those directions. But the, the, the things that the big money is hitting to Cuba about are definitely Havana nightlife and the nightclubs, and they're going to take advantage of all the good Cuban music and dance. But marinas all the way around the island, those things are targeted, and that's kind of what's going in. There's plenty of room for the Cuban small businessman to make money on restaurants and coffee shops without it being Starbucks or McDonald's. And then they're still going to deal with the same island issues. As far as the GMO stuff, on Maui, this is where the GMOs do their experimentation. And we, the Shaka movement has taken them on, and the people have voted them out, and they have taken big money and moved it off the state level into the federal courts. 
and the, Fed, the Fed sided with Monsanto, but in fact, all those things are being challenged. So Cuba can learn from Maui, and this is why, because the same two people, the two permaculture people from Australia that took permaculture into uh, Cuba were in Hawaii in 1991 talking the same story, and they work with the Hawaiian sovereignty movement, the Hawaiian people. And this is something you all need to hear, is that on, in November, there is a Hawaiian sovereignty convention, the restoration of the Hawaiian nation, United Nations recognized. The Hawaiians are holding that convention and will claim the provisional government as standing. It opens the door for land and money and reparations. And we're, we just talked with some, with Artie and uh, Malik about, you know, bringing in some of the Detroit information to Honolulu because the lands from the military they're going to get, the money is going to go into a Hawaiian bank that will administer to the Hawaiian people. And so all of these things that Bioneers are talking about, Kenny's considering having a Hawaii theme next year to tech with all this stuff. We're going solar co-op instead of selling to a Florida company that tried to come in and buy the Hawaii Electric Company, and they don't even allow off-grid solar in Florida. And the governor says, no way. You know, it's 100% it's renewable by 2030. So there is island nations that have things in common and they're already talking. Yeah. So yes, be concerned about GMOs in certain ways, but people in, this, in the center are taking care of business and kicking ass. So I'll bless, bless you all in the Bioneers. And one of the things Bucky Fuller said to me personally was that the definition of integrity is when you see something that needs to be done right in front of you and you can do it. If you can't do it, you don't worry about it. But if you can do it, you do it without factors of remuneration or credit. And that's the definition of integrity. And that's what everybody here is doing. So worry less about what the big things are going to do and know what you can do and then go do it. Fantastic. Fantastic. And by the way, John, you, you, you mentioned something that just, you're talking about quality of life. And again, this, you know, this is, I don't want to sound like a love fit, but I'm just, I'm just relating what I think, which, these are real things, right? Uh, and being, when we went to Cuba, we went, you know, it was a mixed group, women, men. We wanted to obviously see the nightlife too, right? But the real, you know, Cuban. So we were out till, you know, what, midnight or one o'clock. And then our hotel was about a quarter, a half mile away. And. We said, well, how do we get home? And they said, you walk. You walk. There's, I mean, you are, you are safe. I mean, and it's, so all the things that we're, we're talking about in, in terms of materials, and, and here we got this literacy, health care, education, safety. And they have problems. Don't get us wrong. I mean, I'll match Rush Limbaugh for critique of Cuba. I have detailed But Cubans love to criticize their government. That's, that's like a favorite sport, you know? It's like, oh, I had a damn government. So I hear more criticism of government hanging out with people in Cuba than here, you know? So, and the thing about tourism, you'll hear Cuban intellectuals say, oh, tourism, it's chemotherapy for the economy. It could kill us, but it might work. You know, right. you, everything's contradictory. You take yeah. the good with the bad, right? Somebody in the back there needs a microphone. And thanks for hanging with us, folks. You're awesome. Revolution. Coming to me towards the end because, um, well, I'm the 90s kid, and I'm pretty sure I know less than 2% of what you guys were talking about right now in the last, you know, two hours. But I have to say, I grew up reading Harry Potter. That was our generation. And... There's organizations in that book, too, but I agree with what he said and what you two had to say was very important, too. 
Genentech, Monsanto, these names I'm not happy with. The whole, I think they dug their own grave when they wrote, you know, enemy, we were an en you were an enemy once, now you're our ally. Um, who'd want to be with a turncoat? But right. I mean, I'm just saying, like, right. they're not the focus right now. It's what we can do that we need to work on, not trying to change people's minds, because you can't really Absolutely. do that. So what are you looking for? I know finances, all that, that might not be our uh, strength in general, but like resources in terms of from people. Are you looking for writers? Are you looking for advocates? What are you looking for for this organization to go forward? I want people to go on global exchange reality tours to Cuba. What? It, 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 here's what we've done, and I've been, we were very careful in sort of crafting this in the beginning and, and, and using being careful with the choice of words. We call it the, the Cuba U.S. Agroecology Network. There are no obligations and requirements for being in part of a network. But what we, what we do say, here's what we want. We want you to um, be um, able to listen and to exchange ideas and be open to the possibilities of collaboration. We, we don't know, you know, right now we've gotten some funding, I've been, been gratified that we've got some funding from a, a group called the Christopher Reynolds Foundation, and then actually the Ford Foundation came forward with a fairly sizable grant to sort of take it the next step. Um, but this is, it's, it's totally organic right now, you know, and, and, and the way that we've had to do this is that we first build up the, the U.S. membership, because we have to show that there's support. And there also, there's also, we kind of like learn how to navigate the, the Cuban political and cultural waters. And then we, the reason we're going to Cuba in November to attend, we are going to be attending that, that conference, the international conference, and we have submitted an abstract and it was accepted so that, and, and, and the folks there know that what we're looking for is to recruit our Cuban counterparts. So we're, and you don't have to, we're not looking for experts. We're, we're sort of saying, you know, um, I think I mentioned, you know, you know, I, I was, became commissioner of agriculture in Massachusetts. Probably could only do this in Massachusetts, but I, did, I didn't grow up on a farm. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, right? Africa, all right, we got another Clevelander there. And, but I think, you know, people understood that I had a commitment, that I was willing to work hard on behalf of farmers. So you don't have to fit into any particular mold. We're looking for ideas. We're looking for um, commitment. We're looking for passion. We're also looking for money, but we're not looking for money from the individuals and not from the members. Because we don't want to, we don't want that to be any sort of impediment or creating any sort of structure that you pay and you don't pay. That's something. That's all. That's only up to us. But we are looking. I've got a few brochures, but also the the, the website is up there. But just take a look. Just just take a look, and you can see what we're trying to do is is really show that there is strong support for this type of agriculture, and that we admit that there's a lot that we can learn from each other. And so we'd like to establish that type of relationship. Yep. And, and let's remember that all this talk about Cuba, our main responsibility is our government's policy and our right. corporation's policy, not telling the Cubans what to do, right? right. Yeah, I was in uh, Cuba last month, as a matter of fact. I was very fortunate the Pope was there at the time, and it was uh, an uplifting experience, to say the least. Uh, I, I, I consider the Pope kind of a moral leader at this point, and the Cuban people responded uh, very positively. Um, I would urge you all to go to Cuba as soon as possible, because th this is a, a pregnant moment of sorts that... Uh, 
you know, I, I came away with a phrase. I said, the revolution was a success because they really did throw off Batista and the capitalists and the mafia. But the ideology is really a failure. I think what I saw and what I'm talking to lots of Cubans, uh, they're not happy about the economy. They're not happy. I mean, they've got a situation where the human development stuff is working. Literacy, low infant mortality rates, everybody gets food no matter what their cost or quality, no, no homelessness, et cetera. That's, that stuff is beautiful. But there's this black market economy there. Most people are struggling. It's like it's not a real economy. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> our tour guide is a university professor who can't make a living being a university professor. So he works as a tour guide, and the tips from the tourists are what keep them alive. So I guess uh, the other thing that really struck me was that the government owns the property and the buildings all over the place, and the buildings are falling down because they're letting people own the apartments but not the uh, infrastructure. And like in Havana, the statistic is that three buildings a, a day collapse with people in them. So I just want to point to the fact that this is a moment where we can really be of, of assistance. And yeah, it's, a, it's a contractor's dream. <laughs> and, and, and as I said earlier, I, I guess as I said earlier, there there is there is open discussion about the failure of the the economic system. The economic system is not working, and and that's why there is this this um, um, movement to take a look at this the, again a cooperative base where there are you know again private enterprise, uh, but again not going the full route. And by the way, let's face it. We should be doing just the same. We should be getting off our extreme there and looking somewhere closer to that type of model as well. So it's not, I mean, you know, I don't know how to say this. Right, there, there are things and there are people who certainly are prospering in, in this economy, but at a cost to other people, to the environment, to other, to other countries. How do we, and, and again, we won't do anything in terms of the, the history from, you know, again, natives to slaves, but, but it, it comes at a huge cost. And, and this was not a, um, an easy climb in terms of getting our economy to where it was. But there's absolutely, you're right, there's, they've got to do that. Most of the people who leave are leaving because of the economy. Absolutely. And you got to remember that the, the, the generation now in Cuba that grew up under socialism, they're used to all of this stuff. And I do a lot of right-wing radio, and you know these right-wingers who go, oh, yeah, sure, the education and the health care, but, <laughs> well, wait a minute. Well, well, you just jumped over two really big dogs there, pal. Let's back up a bit, you know? So I, I think the thing to do is, and we do this at Global Exchange with all the countries, we go to about 30 countries, it's meet regular people. See what their struggles are like. Develop mirror neurons for them. Strengthen your parasympathetic system and your connection to those people. And then come back and spread the word here. It's called citizen diplomacy. Because the diplomacy that's practiced by the government and corporate empire is just making people hate us. You know, you'll see signs. I've seen this in so many countries. I've had people hold tear gas up in canisters up in my face in Haiti going, look, it says made in USA. What are you doing sending this to the government? You know, 
ah, I don't want to have to say I'm a Canadian when I travel, you know? So this is our responsibility. We have responsibility for U.S. foreign policy, so we can impact it. You go there, you come back, you get on the radio. We have downloadable PDFs, how to organize a house party, how to get an op-ed published, how to, you know, and spread the word because it carries more weight. You know there are advertising companies that hire people to stand in crowded subway platforms and say, oh, did you see that new book by so-and-so? Oh, it's really good, and, and it's fake because they understand that word of mouth is the best form of advertising, right? When your friend tells you a movie's good, uh, yeah. so we have a responsibility to do citizen diplomacy, to go to these countries and then come back and educate, as George Bush would say, the, our fellow Americans, because an ignorant population in an empire that pretends to be democratic, is, that's really dangerous. Five minutes, oh, five minutes There's a man over there. There's a woman over here. Right behind you. Hurry up. Quick. <laughs> Just type A. Type A. Thank you. I want to thank both presenters for sharing these really invaluable messages with us. Uh, I'm here with a small but spirited uh, delegation from the island of Kauai, actually. So uh, much aloha to my brother from Maui over there. And uh, we have uh, a lot of similarities in terms of the environment in Hawaii, and specifically Kauai, it's the same latitude as Cuba, and our soils are the same, uh, a lot of the plants are probably the same, and we actually have a really strong uh, extension slash University of Hawaii College of Tropical Agriculture program that certainly traditionally was all about the commodity crops of sugar and pineapple, but now really is doing a lot of research in organic agriculture Korean natural farming is playing a really important role right now. And we would benefit hugely from learning about the lessons from Cuba. We certainly all saw the film and got excited, but then didn't get much more information. And in ways, Hawaii is kind of like, maybe like Cuba before the embargo, but what we're facing is economic collapse on a large scale would leave us really isolated. So it's a really good time for us to get even more prepared uh, in the skills of ecological agriculture as well. And I would encourage you for sure to include people in the network, organizations and agencies from Hawaii, because there's a lot of stuff that's very applicable in that way. And uh, I'll just end with a question in terms of invasive species in Cuba. Uh, in Hawaii, I'll say, we have huge invasive species problems with both plants taking over our watersheds as well as feral pigs destroying our uplands and resulting in uh, lower rainfall and the loss of basically the watersheds that provide us water for agriculture. Is this an issue that's huge in Cuba? I can imagine that they wouldn't have any funds to control invasive species and is this something that they're facing? The, I, I, I know it is. The, the one, and I'm going to forget the name, but there is an invasive plant species that they actually have been using to make charcoal. Um, I mean, they really have, I mean, it's, it, they, they turned it into sort of an opportunity because, and, and I think that's even become an export um, opportunity for them. There are probably others we haven't, I haven't gotten that. As a matter of fact, one of the things, the groups that we'll be meeting with next week are the Center for Tropical Forest and Agriculture. Uh, we're going to go to a research center. We're going to meet with the Ministry of Agriculture. It, it, so those are the sort of questions that we're, 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 we're going to have. We met with the 
the, the farmers before, but we got more, we ate a lot, right? to be perfectly honest, the first time around, because it was so good. So now we're going to go back and ask, ask those kinds of questions. But there, and there was a contact, I forget who in Hawaii, but oh, it was, I mean, it was really good food. I, 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 but we should, we, we should do that. That's a good connection. And, and the, there's a good uh, factoid that you can use when people are doing all this free, tra- free trade bullshit is you say, you know, we have a massive ex- species extinction crisis, and the number one cause of species extinction is habitat destruction. You cut down the forest, the species die. What's the second biggest cause of species destruction? It's international trade, because the invasive species ride on the trade. They get into a place, kudzu vines, zebra mussel, Africanized bees, all of those things. So free trade, free trade. Oh, yeah, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. we got to have more trade. Yeah, let's, let's be careful about that kind of stuff. Uh, the imports of like meat and dairy versus uh, vegetable produce. And I'm just interested in how much of uh, a Cuban diet consists of meat and dairy, and where is that coming from? They 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 prefer meat, <laughs> and getting them, but pork. they love pork. Yeah, but it's interesting. They are they're starting to change their dietary habits. I mean, and their dietary taste. They and based on. Because these folks are, I mean, I showed you some of the restaurants and some of the on-farm. Vegan restaurants. Yes, and they, they do. They really do. And, and it, actually, the government sort of didn't like that at the beginning. They said this is like this, the, 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 more than, almost as bad as capitalism was sort of like not eating meat, right? It was almost a, a sort of like not good. But uh, well, they import from, again, remember, it's only the U.S. that, uh, and I, I, you know, there's uh, South American countries before the, um, uh, you know, Chavez, you know, before he, he was gone, Venezuela. So they have lots of trade, Canada, um, trading partners. Uh, and, but, you know, if you were, whatever we think about international trade, you got to think if, if you could get something and if it were reliable. And, you know, I, I was amazed, you know, from, from Miami to, to Havana, I mean, you couldn't get sitting in your seat, right? I mean, the plane goes up, and then you're 40 you're, you're, you're 40 minutes, and you're on the ground. And it's, it's just sort of a weird thing, because you think, I'm going to another country, and it's an exotic country, with an off-limit or whatever, so you're bracing yourself, oh, I'm going to have jet lag. No, you're like, <laughs> you're out of there before you can even breathe. It would make a lot of sense, wouldn't it, to be able to sort of say, if there are things that they're producing there that we need, if there was a relationship, we would certainly try to deal with it someone that's a lot closer than, but it's just not, there are all sorts of reasons that may not. Um, imagine, imagine if the Cuban government would give a nonprofit like Global Exchange the exclusive contract for the distribution of Cuban cigars in the United <laughs> States. And we use the profits to subsidize travel to Cuba for low-income inner-city activist kids to study agriculture. Because there are American kids that have gone through medical school for free in Cuba. Well, what if we turned Guantanamo Naval Base into an eco-development center, eco-industrial park, an eco-university? Training people from around the world, the generation, the younger generation, I work with high school kids and college freshmen. These kids are going to be running the world when the shit hits the fan environmentally. And if we don't train them up in eco-consciousness and good green economy skills, shame on us. But thanks for coming to this session.